Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23, we'll be reading uh, this morning the first 12 verses there. Luke 23, verses 1 to 12. Uh, those of you who don't know, um, as we do celebrate um, um, kind of um, uh, the week before Easter here, uh, it really is a celebration of the last week of Jesus' life, leading up to his crucifixion and then celebrating his resurrection next Sunday. And uh, here I've been preaching through the book of Luke, very fitting because we are in the last week of Jesus' life here in the book of Luke. We are actually now in the last day of his life, the morning before he is crucified here uh, in the book of Luke. So very fitting that we would land here. I was actually trying to get all the way to the resurrection by the time we got to Easter next Sunday. We're not going to make it. Uh, So I'll talk about the resurrection next Sunday and then talk about it again in the book of Luke uh, in a few weeks. Um, But anyway, uh, we are in the last day of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, uh, starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 23. Let's pray before we read. Father, we do just thank you for an opportunity to open your word. And Lord, even as we sang in that last song, we do just pray, Father, you would impart power as we read through your word here. We do believe, Father, that uh, these decrees, these words have been breathed out by you, and they are for our eternal good. So Lord, will you please bless us right now with the gift of your spirit, Father, that would illuminate our hearts as we read these things, so that we might be changed by these things. Father, so that we might find an eternal hope in Jesus in the midst of a fallen world, Lord. May we find now in your word an eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And then the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Amen. You know, up until the, up until the 1800s, the most popular form of government in our world was the monarchy. One person in a country invested with some level of sovereign power, the, the monarch, a position typically inherited, uh, this, this family line of kings and queens, the, the absolute monarch having complete sovereignty to do as he or she pleases. The most uh, popular form of government in our world up until the 1800s was the monarchy, but not nearly as popular now. And the monarchy may have lost some popularity because so many kings and queens of the past were absolutely terrible monarchs. Just because you're born into a family doesn't necessarily mean that that qualifies you to run a country. King Ferdinand I of Austria, who was truly the result of some serious inbreeding, he apparently liked to wedge himself into a trash can and roll around the floor. King Alonso VI of Portugal was known as Alonso the Glutton. Charles VI of France was Charles the Mad. 
And then you had Bloody Mary and Ivan the Terrible. (laughs) Just not the types of people that you would probably choose to hold the power of life and death over you. (laughs) Some bad kings and queens in the history of our world. And man, here in this passage, we we do see a couple of really bad kings. Not, not absolute monarchs, but definitely wielding a measure of power here. Essentially, two kings and two really terrible kings. A very, a very twisted and, and corrupt abuse of power here. But, but then, kind of hidden in this passage here, between these two terrible kings, we, we see another king, a very different type of king, a king like no other king. This passage here, it's all about kings. This is a story of three different kings, and the first king here is Pilate. Jesus, here in the book of Luke, has recently been arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. About 12 hours or so before this passage right here, probably arrested late at night. And then throughout the night, Jesus was mocked and beaten and spit on by Jewish guards. And in the morning, in the passage right before this, Jesus was then dragged before the the Jewish Sanhedrin. The council of the 71 most prominent Jewish leaders in Israel at the time with Caiaphas, the high priest, presiding over the council. And Jesus was then subjected to what was really not much more than a sham of a, of a, of a trial. And, and at that trial, Jesus claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be the Son of God, essentially making himself equal to God. And the Sanhedrin then quickly accused Jesus of blasphemy, and they said he deserved to die. And that's where we find ourselves now at the start of this passage. The religious leaders in Israel now want to execute Jesus. But here's the problem, they can't do it. Because Israel is under Roman authority at this time, and the Romans are the only ones who have the authority to exercise a capital punishment. So Luke says there in verse 1 that the whole company, probably meaning the whole Sanhedrin council, now brings Jesus before Pilate, the highest ranking Roman official in the land at the time. And Jesus probably hasn't slept in over 24 hours now. He's probably filthy as he comes before Pilate. He's covered in blood, covered in spit. He's probably physically exhausted, and he's now standing in front of Pilate. John 18 says Jesus is bound or chained, and he's standing outside of the governor's headquarters in Jerusalem. You can just picture it. Jesus surrounded by this hostile uh, Jewish Sanhedrin. Looking up at the, 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 the governor's headquarters, Pilate may be standing on the balcony in front of him. And now these Jewish religious leaders begin to, to level these charges against Jesus to Pilate. And man, all of this that's going on right here, it's happening just as Jesus prophesied. In Luke 18, Jesus said that he would be mocked, he'd be shamefully treated, he would be spit upon, and he'd be delivered to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And here it is, Jesus now delivered up to this man, Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect. My kids, my kids used to think his name was Punches Pilate. <laughs> like he was some sort of famous boxer. <laughs> and in this corner, Pontius Pilate. And this is not Pontius Pilate here, the famous boxer. This is Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect. Pilate, he, he ruled over the, the southern half of Israel for the Roman emperor at the time who was Tiberius. And Pilate's main duties were really to collect taxes in the area and prevent uprisings. And man, up to this point in time here, Pilate had a pretty rocky relationship with the people of Israel. Pretty ruthless ruler by most accounts. 
Luke 13.1 says that Pilate at one point had mingled the blood of some Galilean Jews with their sacrifices, possibly meaning that Pilate killed them while they were offering sacrifices at the temple. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said that when Pilate first became prefect, he intentionally offended the Jews by bringing statues with the image of Caesar into Jerusalem. And Pilate then also stole money from the temple in order to construct a 35-mile aqueduct. And when the Jews protested what he did, he ordered his soldiers to dress as civilians and infiltrate the crowd. And at his command, the soldiers then turned and beat the crowd with clubs, killing many Jews. Not, not, a, not a great relationship between Pilate and the Jews. And now this Jewish Sanhedrin is standing in front of Pilate with this very bloody and spit-covered, exhausted Jesus in their midst, and they begin to bring charges against Jesus. If you look at verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, we, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And they essentially bring three charges to Pilate here against Jesus. When, when Jesus was on, the tri- on trial before the Sanhedrin earlier this morning, they charged Jesus with blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. But, but the problem that these leaders face here before Pilate is that that charge of blasphemy will hold no water whatsoever with Pilate. Pilate doesn't give a rip about any alleged blasphemy against the God of Israel. That is not a crime to Pilate. So they, they come up with some different charges here, charges that all have this sort of political spin to them. And they're basically trying to portray Jesus here as some sort of revolutionary. This political subversive, a terrorist, a threat to the Roman Empire. Because if there was one thing that the Roman Empire could not and would not stand for at this point in history, it was any threat to its authority. About 70 years before this took place right here, back in 44 BC, Julius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time, was betrayed and assassinated by Brutus and others. There's that famous line from Shakespeare's play, Et tu, Brute, and you too, Brutus? which Caesar allegedly spoke to Brutus when Brutus was betraying him and stabbing him to death. And after that historical assassination, some 70 years or so before this took place right here, after that historical assassination, the Roman Empire established a law in honor of Julius Caesar, the Lex Julia de Maestate, which declared the harshest and swiftest of capital punishments against any crimes of treason in the Roman Empire. And that law was most likely still in effect at this time. And these Jewish leaders here know that if this man Pilate right there thinks that Jesus has committed some crime of treason against the empire, Jesus is dead. And so they now bring these charges against Jesus here, all of them with a sort of political or treasonous spin to them. One, we found this man misleading our nation, subverting or or destabilizing the nation of Israel, which is part of your empire, Pilate. And it was was a charge that, that honestly was really probably too vague Uh, to have any real traction with Pilate, but they don't stop there. Number two, Jesus is also forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. He's he's forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. It was a flat-out lie, because Jesus had just taught, back in Luke 20, just taught the people, give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Pay your taxes, people a flat-out lie, but listen, man, that charge there about the taxes, that was definitely moving a little bit closer to Pilate's heart. 
Because collecting taxes for Caesar in the area was Pilate's job. And any Jew who was telling other Jews not to pay taxes to Caesar was threatening Pilate's job. But the charge that that ultimately caught Pilate's attention was the last one. This man, Pilate, he also claims to be Christ. A king. He's Christ. A king. That's what he says. And man, that, that was the charge that made Pilate pause. That's the only charge he interacts with here. Because a king in Israel would be not just a threat to Pilate's job, but could be a threat to the entire Roman Empire. And, and this Jesus here, standing in front of Pilate, this Jesus here supposedly wasn't just claiming to be a king, but he was claiming to be Christ, a king. And that word Christ was probably significant to Pilate. The Romans knew at this time that the Jews were expecting some Christ or Messiah figure to come to Israel at some point in time. The Old Testament books in the Bible had prophesied multiple times that this Christ figure would come to Israel. It would be a, a, some sort of king from, from the, the line of King David. The Old Testament books have prophesied that this Christ king would come. And man, by the time Jesus was born, the, that title, Christ, had become a politically charged title. The Jewish people had grown to believe that, that the Christ would come as a mighty king. Huge display of power and conquer the Romans. It, it was a faulty concept of the Christ. Because the Old Testament books indicated that Christ would come not just once, but twice. And he'd come the second time as a mighty king and conquer his enemies in power. But he'd come the first time in weakness. A suffering king. And die. But man, the Jewish people expected the Christ to come just once. A mighty king to conquer the Romans. And the Romans knew the Jews were Expecting this mighty Christ King. I don't think the Romans were probably very concerned about it. But they did know about it. Pilate probably knew about it. And with Pilate here, it was that last charge. This man claims to be Christ, a king, that caught his attention. And he responds in verse 3. Are you, Jesus, the King of the Jews? And you, you can't catch it in your English Bibles there, but in the Greek, there seems to be a little, a little mockery or, or amusement or, or disbelief in Pilate's question. It could actually be translated as, you are the King of the Jews. You, and you can understand why Pilate might react like that right here. I mean, after all, Jesus does not look like a king right here. At all. He has no crown, no, no scepter, no white horse, no conquering army, just this pitiful looking man. Bloodied, chained, bruised. Eyes maybe swollen from his beating the night before. Covered with spit. Clothes tattered. You are the king of the Jews. <laughs> are you joking? The mighty Christ king who has come to conquer the Romans. Right. And you know, there, there are people today who might respond to Jesus in, in a similar type of way. I mean, you, you hear that Jesus is, is some sort of king, and then you hear about Jesus beaten, mocked, and killed. Something inside you says, you, a king. 
Really. Jesus doesn't look like much of a king here. Man, not, not the type of king anyway that we're used to see. No gold, no glitter, no, no pomp and circumstance here with Jesus. But man, you have to be careful with that. Because looks, looks in our world can be very, very deceiving. Even when it comes to a king. In J.R.R. Tolkien's book, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo first met Aragorn, Strider, Frodo, Frodo just thought Aragorn was, was some sort of aimless wanderer. But Gandalf the wizard then warned Frodo in a letter not to be deceived by Aragorn's appearance. And Gandalf said this in his letter to Frodo. He said, quote, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. End quote. And Frodo later learned that Aragorn, the seemingly aimless wanderer, was actually the true king of Gondor. The one who would ultimately rule them all. Looks can be deceiving, even when it comes to a king. Man, Jesus, he does not look like a king right here for sure. Not the type of king that we're used to seeing anyways. Definitely not the type of king that Pilate is used to seeing. You are the king of the Jews. (laughs) Right. And Jesus answers. The end of verse 3. You have said so, Pilate. You have said so. And you may remember back in, in chapter 22, and when the Sanhedrin asked Jesus if he was the Son of God, Jesus said, you say that I am. And Jesus now responds in a similar manner to this question from Pilate. You, Jesus, are the King of the Jews. You have said so, Pilate. And I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago that that was a, a particular manner of speech back then. It was, a, it was a particular way of saying yes to a question. You were saying yes to the question, but you answered yes to the question in that particular manner, usually because you wanted to put the statement back on the lips of the one who asked the question. And so Jesus, responding that way, was essentially saying this, I think, You said, Pilate, that I'm the king of the Jews. And you are right in saying that. Because I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate responds to him. Verse 4. Pilate says to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent of wrongdoing. And it's a little hard to understand here uh, why, why uh, Pilate would pronounce Jesus to be innocent so quickly. Luke doesn't really give us the answer here. Why Pilate pronounced him innocent so quickly. Luke has basically just given us here a very condensed version of the events that took place with Pilate. But the books of Matthew and John, uh, they flesh them out a little bit more for us and give us some insight. John 18 says that Pilate, after talking with Jesus outside his headquarters, then had Jesus brought inside of his headquarters, and Pilate then asked Jesus again, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus again said, you have said so, Pilate. Yes, I am. But then Jesus added these words. My kingdom, Pilate, is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And you know, who knows what Pilate thought when he heard those words from Jesus. I mean, you know, Pilate, he he could have thought Jesus was half crazy saying those words. Or I, I do think Pilate might have been a tiny bit fearful when he heard those words. Who knows? But I do think that Pilate realized at some point that Jesus wasn't there to fight. Even if Jesus really was the Christ King, this King the Jews were expecting, well, he hadn't come to do what the Jews were expecting him to do. Jesus wasn't there to conquer the Romans. Pilate could see that. Look at this man. He looks pitiful. And man, Jesus wasn't, wasn't a violent revolutionary, a political subversive, wasn't a terrorist. Jesus hadn't committed any crimes, definitely no crimes worthy of execution. Pilate got it somehow in there. And Pilate actually knew there was another reason why Jesus had been delivered up to him. Matthew 27, 18 says that Pilate knew that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus over to him simply because they were envious of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. Because of his popularity with the people. And Pilate recognized the jealousy in these men who had delivered Jesus up to them. And get this, Matthew 27, 19 tells us that at some point in time here, in these interactions, Pilate's wife actually sent a message to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And Pilate got it. I don't know what Pilate thought about Jesus. But he got it. With all that stuff going on, Pilate rightly concludes here, Jesus is innocent of these charges. He steps up and says, I find no guilt in this man. And Pilate will actually say that three times in this chapter. I'll show it to you. He says it in verse 4. I find no guilt in this man. And then if you look at verse 14... Pilate says again, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. And then verse 22, a third time, Luke says, a third time Pilate said to them, what evil has this man done? I find in him no guilt deserving of death. And I think Luke wants those three statements To be absolutely ringing in your ears as you read through this chapter. No guilt. No guilt. No guilt. This Jesus who has already suffered tremendously here in the book of Luke. This Jesus who will suffer more and ultimately be executed innocent of all charges. And here's the thing, it's not just that Jesus was innocent of these charges here. No, the Bible's claim is that Jesus was innocent, period. No sin at all in his entire life. 1 Peter 2.2, he committed no sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. Not sin. A guilty sufferer here. But a perfectly innocent sufferer. And why? Man, that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus, the the sinless Son of God, came to earth and he lived a sinless life in order that he might then suffer and die as a sinless sacrifice. A spotless, sacrificial lamb. For sinners like you and me, this, this sinless one on the cross took the sin of sinners upon himself and took the punishment for that sin, death, in order that every sinner who would repent or turn away from sin and cling to him in faith might be forgiven of sin and washed clean in the blood of the sinless 
sacrificial lamb. That's, that's good news. Jesus, the innocent sufferer. And even Pilate could see it. Pilate pronounces Jesus three times in this chapter to be innocent. And you know what? His trial then should have stopped right there. I mean, in a proper court of law, when the judge pronounces the accused to be not guilty, the accused is released immediately. That's the way the Roman Empire operated. But Pilate doesn't do it. G.B. Caird once said, Pilate does everything in his power here to secure the discharge of Jesus, short, however, of actually discharging him. Look at verse 5. But they, the religious leaders, were urgent. Now in front of Pilate, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They're seriously like a bunch of little kids here. I mean, you, you tell your little kids after dinner, there's no dessert tonight, and man, they will just keep coming after you. I mean, persistent little things. These are like little kids here, man, just persistent with Pilate. Urgent now, Luke says. Stronger, more adamant. He stirs up the people, Pilate. He's agitating the people. He's, he's inciting the people of Israel. Teaching from Galilee, way up north in Israel, all the way down to this place, Jerusalem. And get this, John nineteen twelve says that this Sanhedrin then called out to Pilate and said, If you... Release this man. You are not Caesar's friend. For anyone who makes himself a king is opposed to Caesar. And man, we don't know why Pilate ultimately caved in to these Jewish people and did not release Jesus here. But that right there might have been it. That that very well could have been it. If you release this man, Pilate, you're no friend of Caesar's. And Pilate wavered. Knowing Jesus was innocent and yet concerned maybe that the emperor would hear that he had just released a man who claimed to be king, he hesitated. Whatever it was, something made him hesitate. And man, when Pilate hears here from this crowd, when he hears that Jesus started up north in Galilee, Pilate realizes he might have just found his way out of a very precarious situation. And you look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time, Pilate just found a way to, as we would say, pass the buck. And you know how that stuff works. I mean, you receive an email in your inbox and you do not want to deal with it. So, what do you do? <laughs> you swear out the forward button and you just forward it on to someone else. In the middle of the night. So they get it in the morning. And Pilate just got Jesus out of his inbox. Just forwarded Jesus on to a man named Herod. The second king here in this passage. That's Pilate and now we get King Herod. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas here in this passage. He was... He was a half-Jew. He had been appointed by Rome as tetrarch over Galilee, the area in northern Israel where Jesus was from. Herod didn't rank as high as Pilate did, but he still had some authority over Galilee. And Herod, just like Pilate, he was a terrible king. 
We've already heard about Herod here in the book of Luke. Herod at one point stole his brother's wife. And when John the Baptist rebuked him for it, Herod had John the Baptist thrown into prison. And Herod later beheaded John in an effort to please his niece, who is now his stepdaughter, after she danced for him at his birthday party. Okay, your typical screwed up type of king. Not the guy you'd probably invite over to watch football on a Sunday. And Herod was in Jerusalem at the time, maybe because he was part Jewish and he had traveled down south to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's there in Jerusalem. He was most likely staying at the Hasmonean Palace, which was just to the west of the temple. It was about a 10-minute walk from Pilate's headquarters here. And because Herod has some authority over the area where Jesus was from, Pilate now sends Jesus over to Herod. And the Sanhedrin goes with Jesus, so they probably drag Jesus there through the streets of Jerusalem, this 10-minute walk from Pilate over to Herod. And Luke says in verse 8 that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had heard about Jesus, and he was hoping to see some sign done by Jesus. And you think about King Herod here. Man, he, he, basically, he basically just wanted to see magic tricks from Jesus. Some miraculous signs. And man, listen, whenever people in the Bible come up to Jesus only looking for miraculous signs, they typically get what? They get absolutely nothing. And that's what Herod gets. Luke says in verse 9 that Herod questioned Jesus at length. With all these religious leaders there, Herod just questioning Jesus, but got no answer from Jesus. Silence. No no, no signs from Jesus. Jesus not defending himself before this, this crowd. Nothing. And man, that right there was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. Long before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah had prophesied that the Christ King would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet like a lamb being led to its slaughter, he would not open his mouth. And there he is, the Christ King, before King Herod, for all these people, silent. Sinless sacrificial lamb being led to his slaughter And man, Herod's initial excitement here about seeing Jesus, it quickly turns sour, I think. I think Herod was probably very offended in front of all these people and Jesus not answering a single question that Herod asks him. And Herod now begins to ridicule Jesus. You look at verse 10. The chief priests and the scribes, they stood by vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And if Herod had been a good king, a just king, he would have just sent Jesus back directly. Or he would have released him right away. Because here's the thing, Herod found Jesus to be innocent too. Pilate actually says that down in verse 14. Pilate says, I didn't find this man guilty and neither did Herod. But man, Herod, another terrible king. Herod, he, he, he's just determined here to have fun with Jesus. That's it. And if Jesus won't thrill him with some miraculous signs, then, then, then simply for the sake of his own cruel pleasure, he'll torment Jesus. Herod and his soldiers ridiculing, laughing, mocking Jesus in front of this crowd. And Herod then finally dressing Jesus in what Luke calls splendid clothing. The robes of a king, no doubt. Robes probably taken from the back of Herod's own closet. Philip Riken says, it was the hand-me-down splendor of a tyrant's wardrobe. You think you're some kind of king, Jesus? Here you go. Now at least you look like one. You fool. Man, you know, 
people again today can have the same type of reaction, response to Jesus. I mean, there, there may be some, it's some initial interest in Jesus. Follow Jesus. You're, you're looking to Jesus for a second, but then he doesn't, he doesn't give you the miracles you want. He, he doesn't give you the house you, you want. The job you want. He doesn't give you the relationship you want. And you walk away. Mocking him. You know, king, you're a fool. You're nothing at all. And Herod then sends Jesus back to Pilate. And that leads us to the third and final king here in this passage Pilate, Herod, and now Jesus. If you look at verse 12 again. And Herod and Pilate, oh, let me say this before we look at verse 12. You know, as you read through this story, <laughs> the Bible here, Luke writing and, and the, the Bible, wants you to know here who the true king is. And the Bible is actually telling you here, in some kind of subtle ways, the true king here, he's already claimed to be a king in this passage, and now he's actually dressed like a king. And there's something in the very last verse here that kind of seals the deal. If you look at verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. We have no idea why uh, Pilate and Herod had been at enmity with one another. You can only imagine. You remember Pilate killing the Jews from Galilee? Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. So who knows? That could have been it. We don't know why. Some sort of enmity between Pilate and Herod. Hostility between them. But now, man, as these two kings pass Jesus back and forth here, questioning Jesus, amused at Jesus, mocking Jesus, they now become friends. This, this unholy sort of alliance. Man, this, this strange bond of, of friendship that is now somehow forged here as these two kings sit in judgment over Jesus. And do you know, do you know that friendship right there? That thing right there was the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 was another prophecy about the Christ, the the Messiah. It was written long before Jesus was ever born. And look at what Psalm 2 prophesied about the Christ. Here it is. This is Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage? Or that could also be translated as, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord or against God and against his anointed, or that's the word for Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And that prophecy right there was just fulfilled there with Pilate and Herod. The kings of the earth have now set themselves. The rulers of the earth have now taken counsel together against God and against his anointed Jesus. These kings have now become friends, unified this unholy alliance, sitting in judgment over and against Jesus, a direct fulfillment of that psalm there. How do we know? That Pilate and Herod are a fulfillment of that psalm because the book of Acts tells us. Acts chapter 4. After Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended back into heaven, the Christians in the early church were praying in Acts 4. And they quoted that psalm right there in their prayers. Here it is. This is Acts 4.25. Early church is praying this. They're praying Psalm 2. Listen to what they say. They say, why did the Gentiles rage, God? Why did the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against you, God, and against your anointed one. And then they added these words right here in their prayer. 
For truly God in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To do, O God, whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. You predestined God. You predestined that your Christ Jesus would die. But it was carried out by wicked peoples. Carried out by two wicked kings who set themselves against him. Psalm 2 was fulfilled, man, in this bizarre friendship here between Pilate and Herod. And man, I want you to see here what God then says back in Psalm chapter 2 about this situation here. Let's start in verse 1 again. Here it is. Just see the rest of the psalm here. Why do the nations or the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord God and against his anointed Christ saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now look at the next couple of verses from Psalm 2, this prophecy, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Holds who in in derision? Holds these wicked kings and these wicked people in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And a little later in the psalm, verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Christ. Kiss the one and only true King. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Man, that right there is a direct statement from God that bears on this passage here in the book of Luke. The kings of the earth, they may have set themselves against this man, Jesus here. The the rulers of the earth taking counsel here together against this man, Jesus, mocking, uh, ridiculing, um, amused at Jesus, sitting in judgment over and against Jesus. But God, who sits in the heavens, laughs and holds these kings here in derision, speaks to them in his fury, I have set my king. On Zion, my holy hill. And his name is Jesus. My son. The eternal son of God. The one and only. True. King. So be warned, O kings of the earth. And kiss the son. Kiss the king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Listen. Jesus may not look like a king here in the book of Luke. Not the type of king we're used to. Kings aren't born typically in animal shelters. Kings don't typically work with their hands. Kings, they don't have no place to lay their heads. Kings, they don't have a ragtag band of followers. Kings, Do not allow themselves to be beaten and bloodied and spit upon without ever opening their mouths. Kings kings don't hang on a cross. And Jesus may not look like a king, but man, please, please don't be deceived by his looks. Because all that is gold does not always glitter. And the seemingly crownless Again, shall be king. Jesus, man, he's going to be executed here in just a couple days, but he will rise again from the dead. 
And he will ascend into heaven. And Hebrews 2.9 says that because of the suffering of death that Jesus suffered for sinners, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says that Jesus will soon return to this earth, the return of the King. No longer a suffering king to die in weakness, but now a mighty king to conquer in power. To conquer his enemies and to judge the world and to consummate his kingdom forever. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then there will be loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and the kingdom of his Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Jesus, the King to rule them all. King of kings. The one and only true King. The King like no other. And man, what, what do you do with all that? Well, what do you do with that? Well, I think God probably told us in Psalm 2 what to do with all that. Kiss the Son. Kiss, kiss the one true Honor the king. Obey the king. Bow down to the king. Worship the king. Love the king. Enjoy the king. So listen, man, the monarchy is a form of government. It's not in vogue anymore in our world. Not all that popular anymore. Probably because we've seen so many terrible kings and queens. But you know what? There is something deep down in the heart of every human being that wants a king. Something in the heart of every human that longs for a perfect king. And Jesus is the king. Perfectly good. Perfectly just. Perfectly wise. Perfectly selfless. Perfectly loving. The perfect king who always does what is right. And living in his monarchy is amazing. Now, I might not always feel like it here in this life, but it definitely will in the next life. Kiss the Son and enjoy the King and his kingdom forever. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have given us a King. We thank you, Father, that you have set your king on your holy hill, Jesus. And Father, we thank you that this king brings us to himself with power. He subdues us, guides us, leads us, gives us peace, gives us hope, gives us life. Never leaves us, never forsakes us, defends us from all of his and our enemies. We thank you, Father, that this king is returning. Conquer his enemies. I pray, Father, you give us faith to receive this king, trust in this king, and follow this king. Enjoy this king forever. In Jesus' name, amen.